I will uh, be speaking in the first person, uh, although almost everything I say was worked out together with my uh, colleague Craig Lerner. Um, a few years ago, uh, I went and read the transcripts of the confirmation hearings of the last four Supreme Court appointees, two Republicans, two Democrats. They were all asked in the course of those hearings uh, what they saw the role of the judge was. And they all said exactly the same thing. They all said the role of the judge is to apply the law to the facts. Uh, you can't let your own agenda, your own politics, your own views have anything to do with it. It's all just law. And this was particularly striking in the case of the two Democratic appointees, um, Sotomayor and Kagan, because President Obama had said that's not what he was looking for in a judge. And they were asked about that, and they both repudiated his view of what a judge was. So there seems to be this consensus, um, at least among nominees and senators, about what the role of the judge is. Now, this view is ridiculed by sophisticated observers who think it's impossible to do what all four of them promised to do. In fact, it's not impossible. It was done for centuries in England, and the founders promised that that would continue here. We can see that in the Federalist Papers, where Hamilton explained that the judiciary would be completely non-political. From Hamilton's description, everyone would have expected our judges to be exactly what the senators say they want and what the nominees all say they will be. Scholarly types, cautious and profoundly boring, immersed in the tedium of mind-numbing precedents and deeply self-effacing. Uh, it hasn't turned out quite that way, as we all know. Um, and there are undoubtedly some deep structural causes that have undermined the original vision. One of those was the separation of the court of last resort from the legislature, which enhanced the significance of what we call judicial review. A related cause is the tremendous growth in the power of the federal government, which made the Supreme Court more powerful and significant than it was originally expected to be. There are, however, some other causes which were not inevitable in quite the same way. One was a reform instituted by Chief Justice Marshall, opinions for the court signed by individual justices. Before Marshall, opinions were almost always unsigned or issued seriatim. Now, Marshall's innovation initially contributed to the prestige and authority of the court especially since the opinions were almost always unanimous at first. Eventually, however, these opinions um, became vehicles for the justices to operate as self-promoting individualists. They now frequently write opinions that sound more like political manifestos or pop philosophy or both. What's more, the justices often think it's more important to remain faithful to their own views, including their views in dissenting opinions, than to the actual precedents established by the court. Now, two other contributing factors in the rise of celebrity justices were the elimination of circuit riding and the virtual elimination of the court's mandatory jurisdiction. The court used to decide a huge number of ordinary legal disputes, both on appeal 
and in the course of performing their circuit duties. This kept the justices in touch with what it means to be an ordinary judge, applying the law to the facts, since that is mostly what they did. Now, eventually, they persuaded Congress to give them the power to decide only the cases they found interesting. Not surprisingly, the Supreme Court's docket now bears almost no resemblance to the dockets of the lower courts. Instead, it contains a large percentage of high-profile cases guaranteed to get the names of the justices, along with their witty or pompous declarations, declarations prominently displayed in major media outlets. Finally, the justices have little armies of law clerks who can do almost all of the difficult and disagreeable work of being a judge. The only non-delegable tasks are attending oral arguments and voting in cases. Some justices, I believe, have served for many years while doing little else. At least until recently, the justices hardly discussed the cases with one another. Their real colleagues were their clerks, bright and eager 20-somethings who were eager and happy to do much of the judicial work and, in fact, as much as possible. That freed the justices to focus on their own big thoughts and deep feelings, which the clerks can translate into legal jargon. Chief Justice Rehnquist strongly discouraged extensive discussions of cases during conference, apparently because he thought that nothing useful would be accomplished. Chief Justice Roberts apparently has changed that practice, and it seems to be having an interesting effect. A few months ago, Justice Kagan gave a talk at a law school. I wasn't there, but I heard a report. And according to the report, she, she said that there are now two kinds of conferences long conferences and short conferences. The short conferences are about cases that appear on the front page of the New York Times the next day, the really hot cases. Those are very short conferences. They don't discuss them, uh, apparently because the justices think the only thing they would accomplish by discussing the case is to get each other, get, get themselves annoyed with one another. Then there are long conferences. Those are the conferences about cases uh, that uh, are of no interest to anyone except the lawyers, the parties, and a few specialists in the field. And according to the report, she said, well, there they actually talk to each other and try to figure out what the best uh, legal answer to the question is. How long this will continue remains to be seen. Congress, however, could take steps to create incentives for more long conferences and fewer short conferences. Lerner and I have four proposals that would advance this goal. They're very modest proposals, uh, probably not having really significant changes, certainly not dramatically changing the work of the court. Um, they're also not likely to be adopted, uh, but the country may someday wish they had been. Thank you. Okay, so let's open it up for a discussion between the panelists of the premise of the article that judicial celebrity is impacting negatively the court's jurisprudence. Uh, Professor Hilton, you want to start? Okay, well again, I, I thank you very much for the opportunity to participate here. Um, I, I don't fundamentally disagree with really anything that Professor Lund has said. Um, I do think though the, the problem, the idea that the problem is somehow of recent vintage isn't entirely accurate. I, I have been spending a lot of time in recent years studying the Fuller Court, the, the United States Supreme Court from 1888 to 1910, and uh, I think you could see some of these same 
sort of self-celebratory characteristics. Uh, David Brewer, now completely forgotten, but in his time, the best known United States Supreme Court justice in the country, went around, uh, would not turn down a speaking invitation, um, carried on a kind of war of words with President Roosevelt uh, in the middle of the first decade of the 20th century, um, uh, uh, populated his uh, opinions with phrases like, the United States is a Christian nation, uh, the paternal theory of government is to me odious. Uh, a walk, uh, looking backward is perhaps closer than a dream. And, other, and, and his best friend, although they differed often, uh, Justice Harlan, you know, also wrote opinions with great flourish. Obviously, it's his dissents in Lochner and Plessy uh, put him on the right side of history. But uh, he and Brewer also both were professors at George Washington Law, or the then Columbian Law School, now George Washington. So I think there have always been judges who use the court as a kind of opportunity to uh, capture a, a sort of national uh, audience. Now, I'm not sure how much effect it, it had on their opinions. That they did not have law clerks. Um, they also had to deal with a, a, an enormous backlog of cases, many of which were of relatively little interest and not even really involving uh, constitutional uh, questions. So I, I guess um, I'm, I'm suspicious that just simply changing the kind of framework of the court, while it might have some positive benefits, I guess I'm, I'm suspicious that, that it would really counter uh, the opportunity that Supreme Court justices have to sort of turn themselves into celebrities. Thank you very much for having me. Um, in the interest of giving us something, I don't know, interesting to discuss, I mean, one of the things that strikes me about the diagnosis is that it, as I understood it, it seems to lay most of the blame on the justices, and I'm not sure that that is quite accurate either. Um, so to be a little bit deliberately provocative, I will suggest that one of the sources of Supreme Court judicial celebrity is organizations like the one that's sponsoring this event. And to be clear, there's an organization on the other sides of the political spectrum that do the same thing. But if you want to look at the single biggest source of the celebrification of Supreme Court justices, it's they get invited to conferences at the Wardman Marriott Hilton in Washington, DC, where rapturous crowds of thousands of people give them standing ovations for saying trite, banal things. Um, <laughs> And Justice has been doing this for a while. Warren's right. Harry Blackman used to do this, uh, where he would accept awards, where people would tell him how brilliant he is. Um, but I, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical about the claim that the justices themselves, I mean, to be clear, they could say no, and there have been some justices who have refused to do events like that, but there are justices sort of left, right, and center who do do them. Of course, they can only go to events when people invite them to events. Uh, and they can only get bask in the adulation when people project the adulation at them. Um, and so, I, and of course, this is all made all the worse in this sort of modern social media environment where, you know, the latest uh, memes about Justice Ginsburg are, you know, they, I mean, she's become aware of them and she's responded to them in ways that I think we might all agree are problematic. Um, but she didn't start them. Um, and she doesn't really actually have any ability to control them. Um, and so I also have a little bit of a, if we're diagnosing the problem, um, I'm not sure that the problem is all them. I'm not sure that the problem is not at least in partial measure us. And when I say us, I don't think I mean the popular culture at large. I mean lawyers and law students and the particular subset of lawyers and law students who for whatever reasons are particularly interested in the Supreme Court. 
So I'll stop there. Uh, I don't disagree with either of those points, and I don't think those points disagree with anything that we said in the article. Uh, the thing I want to emphasize is I think there are some deep reasons why this has occurred. Um, what I'm proposing is very, very marginal changes that might diminish it a little bit, um, and, and, and that's all. So I, I don't think, I don't, I don't disagree with e e anything either of the other speakers have said. Okay, so on the topic of those changes, why don't you tell us about the first one? Okay, the, the first proposal is uh, to stop the justices from signing their opinions. All opinions would be issued anonymously uh, by statute. A statute would require that all opinions be issued anon anonymously, uh, including concurrences and dissents. Um, just, we have per curiam opinions now. Uh, that practice could just be <coughs> Uh, codified and extended to, uh, to the dissents and the concurrences. I think this would cause the justices to focus somewhat more on the reputation of the court and somewhat less on their own glory. Um, I think it would also produce fewer unintelligibly splintered decisions and precedents would come to mean more on the court. Uh, finally, I think it would uh, reduce the incentives for the, uh, what I think is somewhat unseemly flamboyance that characterizes a lot of modern Supreme Court opinions. Not that it's unique to the modern era, uh, but it seems to be, there seems to be a lot of it. Um, some justices have said publicly they do it deliberately in order to get attention for their opinions uh, for reasons that they think are good reasons, but I think uh, the nation could, could live without it and the judges would look a lot less uh, political uh, and more judicial if this reform were adopted. Well, I have to admit that of all of Professor Lund's uh, proposals, this is the one that, that uh, I, I balk at uh, most uh, emphatically. Uh, I'm not sure I can entirely justify that, except it seems to me that the, the experience of the modern world is that anonymity never really works. Um, there was a time when law review notes were almost uniformly published without identifying the names of the author, and then uh, over time, initials started opinion, appearing, and then finally, the, the name of the student author. Uh, I think there is just something inherently inconsistent with uh, uh, the way in which we think and argue in our culture with the idea of a, of a strictly per curiam system. Um, I, I would think maybe the better and maybe a more modest alternative would be just to eliminate uh, the dissenting opinion. This is something I have also picked up from my fuller court, uh, that, that dissents were much more common than dissenting opinions uh, in that era. In other words, that it was entirely within the purview of the way in which the court operated that judges could just have their name as listed as not agreeing. And I, I wonder if that might be a more modest alternative that might have some of the salutary effects you're pointing at. But we would still, though, be able to identify which justice had written the majority opinion. So it's interesting, because I'm not especially troubled by the idea that majority opinions would be unsigned, um, as, at least as a practical matter. I, I think it's actually a little bit weird that we allow the attribution of something that's supposed to be on behalf of an entire body 
uh, to be attributed to an individual member of that body, which creates weird questions about whether that person has some special insight into the meaning of that opinion when it wasn't actually theirs. It's, it's joined by a number of other people. So I'm not actually troubled at all by the idea that majority opinions would be unsigned. Um, it, it does strike me as stranger that you wouldn't have signed dissents or concurrences in the judgment. I wouldn't have any problem with banning concurring opinions. Um, if you really agree with the judgment, I don't know why you need to write your own opinion. Um, it is a little bit weird if you don't agree with the reasons given for the judgment. Um, but that gets me right to the problem that I, I think that the principle or the strongest, um, the strongest example of these opinions that, that strike me as unseemly as well, they're usually concurrences and dissents. They're usually not, I mean, there are counterexamples. There are opinions for the court, but I think more often than not, their concurrences and dissents. And so it seems like you need to do something about those. I don't know why, but something strikes me as intuitively, but maybe it's just failure of imagination and maybe it's an idea that we should think about because I do think, for, I don't think that making majority opinions unsigned would do that much to address the problem. It would be concurrences and dissents. And even though that seems strange, I guess I can't think about why in principle that strikes me. I mean, I do agree that I'm not sure it's terribly likely to work in the sense of in the era of modern analytics of texts, it's actually not that hard usually to figure out who wrote a particular document. But sure, okay, if specialists who are obsessed with doing it can figure out good for them. Um, but it's another thing to say that things don't get quoted in the New York Times as attributed to particular justices. So I think it's an interesting idea. Uh, just a couple of uh, comments. On the practicality, it, it, may not be, it, it may not be practical, but I think it would be for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, we already have a strong norm of anonymity for per curiam opinions. Lots of people know who they think wrote uh, the per curiam opinion in, in a case like Bush v. Gore, for example, uh, but the author doesn't get to take credit for it publicly. It's not widely publicized who the author is because it's really everybody just guessing. Um, and I don't think that the, that the justices would have that much incentive to leave little clues to make it easy for everybody to figure out. Uh, they could do that, but if they did, I think a few pointed comments at budget hearings from Congress which passed this statute uh, would be enough to create self-discipline uh, among, the, among the justices. Now, as far as the anonymity of the, of the concurring and dissenting opinions, um, I, I think that is crucial. Uh, I think it's true that most of the inflammatory rhetoric occurs in dissents and concurrences, and it would be important to have those anonymous so as to reduce the incentive for that to take place and reduce the incentive for the majority opinions to, if not match that kind of flamboyance, at least counter it. We just get a lot less unproductive uh, uh, rhetorical competition and so on. Now, is there anything of value in signed majority opinions? Um, I don't, I just don't see what it is. Um, I, I just don't see what it is. And the fact that it's um, uh, not part of our culture uh, just seems to me to be uh, uh, a fact that could be changed by a change in the culture, which Congress could, I believe, make. Okay, let's go on to the second suggestion. Okay, uh, you, you're all familiar with how the court gets most of its cases, which is on uh, certiorari. Um, it's less known that there's another way that Congress has provided for courts to go to the cases to go to the Supreme Court, and that's by what's called certification. 
There's a statute that allows any court of appeals to certify a legal question on which they think they need guidance uh, to the Supreme Court, which can either issue binding instructions um, or, uh, uh, or take the case up itself and decide the case. And the Supreme Court from the very beginning has hated this. Apparently they just don't like the idea of anybody telling them what cases they should hear. Um, so uh, my proposal is to uh, leave the court free to take as many cases on cert as it wants to. It can take all of the abortion cases, the same-sex marriage cases, the uh, nude dancing cases that it likes, but it has to take at least an equal number of cases on certification from the courts of appeals. Um, that would encourage the court to take more cases uh, that are actually uh, on issues that are actually vexing the legal system. It would also force them to take more cases of the type that lend themselves to what Justice Kagan called the long conferences. And I think that would be a healthy exercise uh, for the minds of the justices. Well, again, I, I, I don't want to be thought to be disagreeing with the idea that something needs to be done in this area. Uh, it does seem to me, though, that um, this isn't a particularly intriguing idea. Uh, again, just to go back to briefly to my fuller court experiences of trying to read through most of the opinions over this 22-year period. And a significant majority of them, I believe, uh, were originally filed under diversity of jurisdiction grounds. So they involved common law of tort and contract property questions, but the parties just simply wouldn't give up and kept uh, appealing, and they ended up on the Supreme Court docket. And certainly there's nothing um, desirable, I think, about having the Supreme Court sort of saddled with the responsibility of deciding essentially state law uh, issues. Um, I guess the, uh, the, the really interesting question to me for historically is why the certification process hasn't been more successful. Um, is there a problem with letting circuit court judges, circuit court of appeals judges basically set the Supreme Court docket. I mean, I don't know that there necessarily is, but it seems to me that's something, it would be interesting, what sort of cases would in fact uh, come up? And um, would they be as different? Or uh, would we just end up with um, more of the same sorts of cases we have now? Um, so I guess I, I, I guess I have questions, but no real comment or answer. Well, we do have a somewhat similar statute that allows district courts to certify cases to courts of appeals, and that statute is almost never used. Um, and my understanding, the reason that statute is almost never used is really twofold. One is district judges don't certify very many cases, and when they do, the courts of appeals refuse to accept them, and so there's a feedback loop. Um, and, and I wonder if one of the problems with the certification statute is, one, that the Supreme Court does say no. I'm personally aware of one example where the Supreme Court said no a number of years ago. Um, but I also wonder what the incentive for the Court of Appeal, I, I, if for this proposal to actually work, I think you'd have to figure out what incentive do Court of Appeals judges have to do this. So by hypothesis, it would presumably take some sort of majority of the Court of Appeals to certify a case to the Supreme Court. Presumably the majority has won the case in the Court of Appeals. That's what it means to be a majority. So having just won, what exactly is my incentive as a circuit judge to certify a case to the Supreme Court, which can only then do one of two things. Agree with the outcome that I just won on, in which case, okay. 
or disagree on the outcome in which I just won, which is terrible because I thought that outcome was right. And so one question I have is it's difficult for me to figure out what the incentives you could create to make court of appeals judges actually want to. Now, I imagine there'll be a few cases where there are sort of intractable circuit splits um, where they just want to know the answer, maybe. Um, but then I wonder if those aren't the, if the cases where it's really so intractable that a court of appeals judge would feel, even though I might lose the position, the one that I prefer, I'd rather just get an answer from the US Supreme Court because this is a mess. I start to wonder about how different those cases look from the current cert docket. Um, and so I'm not really sure how that changes the world that much. So it, for me, it's a, really a, a question about how do you incentivize circuit judges to do this? Yeah, I, I'm not sure how it's worked. Congress gave it a long time for it to be tried, and the, and the, and the Supreme Court wouldn't allow this, the experiment to be made. Um, but as I, as I read the statute, it doesn't require the circuit courts to decide the case before they certify it. If they think they need guidance, uh, they can simply ask the Supreme Court for that guidance. I would think, and or at least hope, that a significant number of the cases the courts, the circuit courts sent up to the Supreme Court in certification would be cases uh, where the Supreme Court itself has issued this vague, muddled kind of decision on things that most of the judges don't care about in the lower courts. They just really want the, a clear answer so they can apply the law um, and ask the Supreme Court to give that to them. Um, whether how much of what percentage of the certifications would be of that of that kind who knows you'd have to try it and see uh, But that would be the hope that would have some marginal effect in that way and thereby also create somewhat Greater incentives for the Supreme Court itself to stop issuing these kind of unintelligible decisions and leaving the courts below just to clean up the mess Which they do quite frequently Okay, let's go to the third suggestion Okay, the third suggestion is very simple, bring back circuit riding. Um, you could structure it in different ways, but one way would be to have uh, every justice assigned every year uh, at random to one of the lower courts, uh, both circuit, district, and so on, um, and be assigned by the chief judge of that court to perform at least 5% of the average annual workload of a judge on that court. Uh, they have plenty of time to do it. Uh, you know, they're all writing autobiographies and various other kinds of books and spending the summer in the Alps and so on. They could easily do this, this kind of work. Um, and that would cause, at least at the margin, uh, the, the justices to have some more experience of behaving like a real judge, uh, charging juries, holding settlement negotiations, um, being overruled on appeal and various other experiences that they don't have, um, they would also have some opportunity to see how their own court, the Supreme Court's um, uh, opinions, often create tremendous and unproductive headaches for the lower courts. Um, and in general, would just give them a little bit more experience in behaving like judges instead of like shepherds of the people. And now this is this is one that I do kind of uh, uh, have some reservations about. Uh, it seems to me, and I don't want to overemphasize uh, the importance of the Supreme Court, but there is something slightly demeaning about being assigned about this proposal, about being sort of randomly assigned to a court and then being told you have to do five percent of the workload, but the chief judge of that court will tell you uh, how to do that. 
Uh, although, I, but I don't disagree with the idea. I, I wonder if it might be enough just to try to reconstruct the old system. Uh, where's the biggest difficulty just going back the way it was for 1891 is that the old federal circuit courts really haven't existed for over 100 years now. These were courts, uh, they were not the Court of Appeals. They were courts with a combined trial and appellate uh, jurisdiction where typically the Supreme Court justice sat with a one or two district court judges uh, to resolve cases at the sort of semi-intermediate level but at which some cases originated. And I don't think we have those courts and I don't think we necessarily want to bring them back. But uh, maybe just having um, that part of the duties just assign the justices to circuits, which is still done, and just have them spend part of their time sitting, if the judge for the Fourth Circuit would just sit with the Fourth Circuit, uh, at least during some period of time when the Supreme Court's not in session. That way it would at least, the, the role would be defined uh, in advance. So I love the idea, um, and I don't particularly, I'm not particularly concerned about the demeaning uh, concern. Um, because I'm sympathetic to the view that they could use a little bit of that. Um, I have one concern about the district court level and one concern about the circuit court level. At the district court level, and I mean this seriously, I worry that they would be deeply incompetent federal trial judges. Um, I mean, I mean that. And, and these are real people's cases that are being heard by these federal trial judges who have an incredibly hard job. And I'm terribly worried that many of these justices would be terrible at that job. Um, and we would be playing with real people's cases by assigning them judges who I think would be terrible at the job. So I'd be worried about that there. Um, second, at the circuit level, which strikes me as, as very promising, my only real reservation there is the fear that some circuit judges would be excessively deferential to the justices who sit on their panels, and I worry that the justices would have a hard time mentally toggling between the sort of two roles, where one I'm bound by circuit precedent and one I'm not. I'm actually more worried about the former uh, than the latter. Uh, but, but, but I think especially sitting on the circuits, I think that could be a, a very promising thing. I mean, one thing that's really interesting to think about is, again, not to return to my point about whose fault is this, I mean, part of this is the fact that we don't appoint very many justices who were ever trial judges. And increasingly, we don't appoint ma as many justices who spent a meaningful amount of time as a, quote, real judge on a real court, because I don't think the DC Circuit counts as a real court. Um, but I mean, Justice Alito was a court of appeals judge on a real court that hears a lot of diversity cases for more than a decade. Justice Sotomayor was a district court judge and a circuit court judge on courts that hear real cases all the time. Um, and so they do still happen, but for whatever reason, and it probably has something to do with the politics of the nomination and confirmation process, those people don't get appointed Supreme Court justices. Um, I won't say any more because I'm not sure they ever did. We used to, we used to appoint senators to the Supreme Court, for example. Um, so some concerns about implementation and then I guess what it, what it says about the fact that we don't, one of the reasons the impetus to do this is that we don't appoint people with these life backgrounds as justices very often, which raises the question of why that is. I agree that with the, a lot of the people who have been on the court recently, uh, there would be a competence problem in having them uh, be on the district court. Um, and I think that the, the answer to that is twofold. One, um, presidents might less frequently appoint those kinds of people to the Supreme Court. Um, and second, they could get some training and supervision uh, from the chief judge of the court to which they were assigned, which presumably new judges often need. Um, they, the, if the, and if the 
justices who weren't competent to, to act as a district court judge um, didn't had to take a little more time away from their summer vacations to get some training on that part of their job. I don't think that would be too bad. Okay, let's go to the fourth and final suggestions in the article. Okay, my last suggestion, and I think not my least important one, uh, is get rid of their law clerks. Um, they don't need them. At least they shouldn't need them. They're the judges. Now, research functions could be performed uh, in the office of the court's librarian. Uh, the librarian could hire a professional staff of researchers who would answer research questions for the justices, and the, uh, the justice, all the justices would get the result of the, of the research. There are a lot of pernicious effects uh, from having the law clerks. Um, not the least of which is they're all attached to one justice. So they become agents of the justice who do the justice's work, uh, often do the justice's thinking. That's less true, I think, now on the court than it used to be, but that time could arrive again when that's much more common. Um, and this, this suggestion also would encourage presidents to appoint more people who are actually competent to do the job. Um, it would also approximate the effect of term limits, which get talked about from time to time. Um, along with the other reforms that I've suggested, it would make the job of being a Supreme Court justice a full-time, non-delegable jo job. And that would discourage justices from staying in the saddle after they've lost the ability to mount the horse. Well, I, um, I, I have some thoughts on this, uh, that the key would actually be to go back to having one clerk. Um, I do think uh, the history of the Supreme Court shows that there was a problem, at least with some justices, when justices had to write their own opinion. It seems like in the, I don't know, before the Second World War, uh, one of the factors that came into play when the Chief Justice had to assign someone to write an opinion was just whether or not that justice would be able to, to, to produce an acceptable opinion that wouldn't have to be just written by, rewritten by someone else. And it did seem to me that going from zero clerks to one probably improved the, the, pro the, the overall product, particularly of judges who were not academically inclined or uh, particularly enthusiastic about doing research. Um, when I was a clerk many years ago for the Virginia Supreme Court, um, the judge that I clerked for actually had strong views on this, that he thought one of the most wasteful features of the system came when clerks talked to each other. Uh, the Virginia Supreme Court is based in Richmond, but justices are free to keep their primary offices in other places, including their hometowns, which he did. And he always complained every time he went to Richmond, all he saw was just the clerks standing around talking to each other in the hallway, and he didn't see that as really advancing the cause of justice. So I suppose when every judge has four clerks, then you've got a real conversation among clerks uh, uh, scenario. So I'm not sure that all the conversation is wasted, but it seems to me that it might be overly productive, and, and particularly in regard to the length of opinion. So here again, I basically agree, but I, I would think that reducing the situation the way it was during one of the kind of golden ages of the Supreme Court where the Chief Justice has two clerks and 
everyone else has one, going back to that system might accomplish much of what you proposed. So two things. First, this isn't actually that radical because there are a number of state Supreme Courts that do this. Um, I believe the Supreme Court of Minnesota does this, and I believe the Supreme Court of California does this. They, the justices do not hire individual law clerks. So it is a model that you could do. So I guess the next question, though, is to think about what the model would look like. Um, perhaps it's because I'm skeptical of the ability to make people, especially powerful people who don't want to do work, to do their own work. Um, so I, I want to think a little bit about what I think this would actually do, and I suspect that one of the things this would start to do at the Supreme Court is produce a situation that exists in all the courts of appeals, which is the extensive reliance on staff attorneys, which is uh, basically professional people who do large amounts of the sort of below-the-radar legal work of the court of appeals. Um, there's a lot of cause for concern that a lot of these routine, very easy cases are not in any meaningful sense being decided by Court of Appeals judges right now. They're being decided by staff attorneys who write up memos which are perfunctorily prevent, presented to a bunch of judges who then sign off on them. And I start to wonder if the Supreme Court wouldn't likely emerge with some other similar institution, uh, particularly cert. Justices are not going to start reading 9,000 cert petitions a year themselves. I don't think there's any way you're going to make them do that. Um, and so I think what you'd end up having is staff attorneys rather than law clerks. Now, maybe that would be good because those staff attorneys would work for the Supreme Court rather than the justices themselves. So you might get some of the benefit. Um, and so to the extent that's the principal benefit, severing the connection between the justice and their own personal little apprentices, that might be good. I, I don't think you're going to success, you're likely going to get them successfully to go back into the days where individual justices were writing first drafts of their opinions in longhand. Um, I think that ship has, for better, for worse, sailed, and I'm not sure there's any possible way to put it back. No, I'd let them use word processors. <laughs> um, I, I, you could certainly run a, something like the current cert pool out of the office of the librarian, um, and uh, I, I'm a, I don't believe uh, that uh, the justices are going to turn over the cases they want to hear and they want to hear a lot more of their cases than the courts of appeals want to hear of their cases. Um, I just don't believe they're just going to turn that over to staff attorneys. Um, and I think if it, when, when justices became uh, incompetent to, to, to write opinions, uh, their colleagues would pick up the slack and eventually push them off the court in one way or another. Um, and I don't see anything particularly wrong with that. I'd rather have the other justices get some more work and do the work uh, than to have it pushed off on the law clerks. And that reminds me, I should also point out that uh, our proposal for anonymous opinions would not apply to the lower courts. Um, I think the attribution of responsibility uh, for opinions there is more important uh, because the lower courts have, the courts of appeals, have more <coughs> incentive to shirk uh, than Supreme Court justices do, whereas the incentives are different for Supreme Court justices they have more incentive to do a kind of overwork, namely the unnecessary work of pursuing their own personal glory. Are you concerned about the possibility of a permanent bureaucracy in, in the office of the court librarian? Just because I suspect you're not sympathetic to bureaucracies as they develop in government and the ideological leanings that they um, tend to have. Well, no, I'm not particularly worried about that. The, the court itself would control who the librarian is uh, and what, how he or she performed, uh, performed the job. 
Also, there wouldn't be that much for them to do, really. Um, you know, doing legal research and turning it into the kind of stuff that all of us learn to do in law school, uh, that's not that hard. Um, and um, it need not be uh, the kind of thing that, that, that really influences the, 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 the decisions of the justices the way bench memos certainly can. The bench memos uh, written by the, by the elbow clerks. So I, 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 don't, I don't believe that's a, seri a serious danger. Okay, well that's the end of the four, dis the four suggestions which are included in the article. We just want to have a quick discussion. Um, are there any other thoughts that any of the panelists have on what might be done to make the court function better that we haven't discussed here now? Well, I have one. These are these were all the modest proposals that <laughs> that Lerner and I uh, were able to agree on. Um, if they didn't work, we could try something more radical. And here's my radical idea: um, have lots and lots of Supreme Court justices, maybe a hundred of them, and let them take turns one year deciding the cases that are now decided by the Supreme Court, make the final decisions, and the rest of the time they would sit as uh, Court of Appeals judges. They'd still be Supreme Court justices, but only once every few years would they get a one-year chance to uh, uh, to actually make the final decisions in cases, the unappealable uh, decisions. Um, I think that would go a long way towards destroying the cult of celebrity and having the Supreme Court justices behave more like, uh, like lower court judges, which is actually what they would be most of the time. Yeah, and just on that particular point, um, I don't know if you've run across this or not, but in the 1950s, the Wyoming legislature endorsed a constitutional amendment that would abo abolish the Supreme Court. For bizarre reasons, the Wyoming was particularly upset by Brown versus Board of Education, even though there were apparently no black people in Wyoming, <laughs> nor segregated schools, but just, I think, what they viewed as a usurpation of constitutional authority. And the, the proposal would designate the, the then 48, uh, I guess soon to be 50, Supreme Court, state Supreme Court chief justices uh, to sit annually as the highest court of the United States. So this would only be 50 judges. But, and then the rest of the time they would go back to Wyoming or Connecticut or Oregon or Alabama and be chief justice of the Supreme Court in those states. And that, at least the proposal was, would restore federalism uh, in the United States. It didn't get picked up on, but it sounds like it's not entirely inconsistent with your idea. Uh, no, I, I haven't worked out my idea in, in detail, and, and that sounds like an interesting alternative. I would like to give some thought to, to, to which is better, maybe some hybrid of the two. <laughs>